Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true God in the springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Command and teach these things. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Fight the good fight of the faith. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Grace be with you all. Well, there you get a nice overview of the book of 1 Timothy. That's where we're at again today. We'll be here for a few weeks. And I was thinking as, as Lane was singing so beautifully, by the way, um, what a responsibility we have as parents, as leaders in this church to pass on the faith to the next generation. And I want to just today, as we look at truth and look how easily truth can slip away with one generation to the next, I want to encourage parents. I want to encourage leaders, people who work with children's ministry, youth ministry, that you be diligent to be um, an ambassador for truth, to hold on to truth and pass it on and, and do it unashamedly. Share Christ. Be specific. Be real. Be transparent. Because we're, we live in a day when truth can easily, easily just slip out of our fingers and be gone in, in just in a few short years. I was reminded of this as I was thinking about the topic, what, what really the, the, the main theme of this passage today is, and it's really the heart of God. And I was thinking about that concept. Can we know the heart of God? Can we know God's heart? And that was, I was pondering that expression. Uh, an old song, a hymn came to my mind called Near to the Heart of God. You may have heard of that. that, that but it was written by this guy. I go back to the, the slide, you guys, um, just real quick. It was written by this guy, Cleland McAfee. And he was the pastor of this church called Lafayette Avenue Presbyterian Church in 1904. And, and, I, and I've been in New York several times, and, and I thought maybe I'd possibly been to this church, and so I pulled up and see what a picture of it looked like. And like many of the churches in New York City, it's, it's amazing. But this is that church today. This is the front of this beautiful, unbelievable, like uh, just, just great, magnificent building. And this is the front of the, of the church. And it really goes in line with what Johnny was saying today about um, us acts of mercy. And this balance between love and truth. Because the church has to strike that balance. And what struck me is I went back to this, 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 this uh, website and looked through this, this church's, what they, looking for what they believe today. I couldn't find their doctrinal statement. I could not find anything that they said they believed. All they wanted to talk about was social justice. Doing good for people, which, as was mentioned, is, is critical for Christians but not at the expense of truth. 
Because truthfully, how can we show truth and love without telling them about Jesus and being clear that the gospel is the foundation for all that we do? And so as I, I thought about this guy who wrote this song, who was a pastor of that church, and how far that church has gone in a hundred years since he was the pastor there, it just reiterated to me just our responsibility as parents and as church leaders to hang on to truth and teach truth and don't be ashamed of the truth. And that's what Paul is going to speak to Timothy about in this church in Ephesus, even though this was many, many, many years ago. The battles are still the same. It's a battle for the truth. And if you wonder how this church, Lafayette Avenue Church, went from being a beacon for the gospel to today not even putting the gospel on their website, it's because they let go of the foundation of truth, which is God's word. They began to make compromises when it came to God's word. And they begin to not care about what God cares about. And it's important that we understand the full counsel of God and, and trust God's word as the authority and not reinterpret the parts of the Bible that we don't really particularly care about and like. And so today we're going to talk about knowing God's heart. Love for people, love for the truth. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Six. Paul writes to Timothy, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you for your word that has endured the centuries, has endured so many people attempting to destroy it, to belittle it, to mock it. And even the day and age that we live, we have churches today that are unwilling to preach the full counsel of your word. And God, I pray that you will just wake us up. Help us to see that as the church, we've been given the privilege to guard and protect truth and to give your truth in love. And God, I pray today that we will take away practical things that we can do this week. But most importantly, God, help us to get to know you. Because you are the foundation for all truth and all love. In Jesus' name, amen. So in chapter 1, which we finished up last week, Paul commands Timothy in the church of Ephesus to guard the truth, to celebrate the gospel, celebrate the truth, and fight for the gospel, fight for truth. And we know that during this time, that Paul was writing to Timothy, the church of Ephesus, had went from being this amazing church to now people were in there teaching things that didn't matter. They were forsaking the gospel, forsaking the, the authority of Scripture. And instead, they were running after what Paul calls myths and genealogies and focusing on stuff that just didn't matter at all. And so Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he builds this incredible foundation for the gospel. 
He lays down this foundation for the church of Ephesus, and now he's going to begin to build upon that foundation by giving practical instructions for this church. And apparently the public worship service of the church in Ephesus was quite a mess. Uh, Corporate worship is very revealing. How you approach corporate worship, how we approach corporate worship, what we do in this time, really indicates a lot of the health of a church. You can see how a church approaches God's word, and how a church handles God's word is how healthy is that church. As I was looking yesterday into the church there at Lafayette Avenue in, in New York City, I went on to their website and watched a, a couple sermons, clicked on those and began to watch. And one sermon was the passage in Matthew where Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go and to heal and to spread the good news and be ambassadors for the kingdom. And the scripture was read, about two comments was made upon scripture, and then the whole concept of the message from there on out was that LGBTQ plus our people are ambassadors, are prophets, and we should respect those prophets. Has nothing to do with the Bible, has nothing to do with what the scripture was saying, but ran off with it in a direction that suited their audience and suited the guy's personal needs. And so the point is, if we don't hold on to truth, what are we going to do? Just preach our opinions, talk about our opinions. And so what happens in here is very important, is very telling. And it says what the health of our church is all about. And so the the church in Ephesus was a mess. They were dealing with all kinds of issues. And so Paul is going to begin to set things straight. And the first thing he deals with is prayer. He says, first of all, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now, why does Paul say for us to pray for all people? If we prayed for every single person, that would be pretty tough to get through our prayer list, wouldn't it? It would take a long time to pray for everybody. So what's he getting at? Clearly, he's not saying pray exhaustively for everyone that you know. A little background here. The false teachers in Ephesus had perverted the gospel and were teaching that salvation was only for the select Jewish people who are keeping the law, some mixture of law and grace, some mixture of law and Christianity, Jesus, and the few Gentiles who converted to Judaism or converted to the Mosaic law. And so it was some hodgepodge mixture, we don't know for sure, of this just false gospel of works. And I once looked into, just out of curiosity, the process of converting to Judaism, what was involved in that. And I will say, if you want to be just baffled like with how many hoops that one has to jump through in order to become a member or become a Jewish person, a person who, who follows Judaism, it's, it's unreal the amount of hoops that, that you would have to ju- jump through. And I was exhausted just reading the stuff, more or less trying to obtain this. And Jesus did all the hard work. He removed all the obstacles, the religious obstacles, so people could come to him, as he said over and over in the Gospels, with faith like a child. Just humble yourself like a child. But instead, just like today many churches do, the false teachers in Ephesus had created more things to jump through, more hoops, more a process in order to be a Christian or be, put, put your faith in Christ. And so organized religion can easily become an obstacle to faith. And so these false teachers were these elitist. They were exclusive, and they claimed that only a few people could be saved. Only a few people could reach salvation. And so he uses this word all, pray for all people, without distinction. All kinds of people. You need to pray for everyone, all kinds of people. Don't be just this group or that group 
or these people who are like me. Don't just pray for those. Paul is saying, pray for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. Pray for everyone. And then in verse 1, he also lists out different types of prayer. In the New Testament, there's at least seven different words that are used for prayer, and four of them you see right here in this one verse. He says, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And so Paul's point isn't to list all the many ways to pray here, but he's looking to pile up the various terms to show the cumulative impact, so to speak, of prayers. That prayer is important, it's vital, and you need to pray for everyone, impact everyone, pray for everyone. Now, one word that he uses for prayer we may not be familiar with, it's this word supplications, which is uh, to mean to lack, to be deprived, to be without. And so prayer is uh, about calling out when we have a need, seeking God for the needs that we have. And in this passage, Paul's going to walk us through to show us that people have a need. They need a Savior. And so as he's telling this congregation, this church at Ephesus, he's saying, pray for all people, supplications for all people, because people have needs across the spectrum. It's not just this elite group or that elite group. All people need prayer. All people need a Savior because the church has been entrusted with the good news, which is for all people. And so if we want to influence people around us, what do we do? We pray for people who don't know Jesus. We pray for people who seem far away from Jesus. And it's easy to think that prayer is kind of a worthless endeavor. It's kind of a waste of our time. We pray before a meal, and then we're done. We're good for the day. In the New Testament, again and again, prayer is just reiterated how important it is, how essential it is, for the body of Christ. And we're going to talk more about this in a second. But when you think about your prayer list, I hope you have a list of people that you pray for. People who need Jesus Christ. And it's not just inside your inner circle, but outside your inner circle also, there's people that you come in contact with that you pray for those people. And most of us do. We start there, don't we? We start with, you know, I'm going to pray for my family. I'm going to, of course, pray for myself and everything that I'm dealing with and all my struggles and my job and the pressures that are on me and my mental health and my health and, and my wellness. I'm going to pray for those things and for those people right around me. But our prayers really kind of fall away as we go outside the circle further and further, right? They enter the circle. Because truthfully, a lot of what we don't pray for reveals a lot that's not, you know, where our heart's at and, the, and our hearts are not for people like God is for people. The more that we pray for people outside of our circle, the more it reveals a heart that's compassionate like God's heart is. And so if we think about our prayer list, we naturally start inside, but where does Paul start? He starts on the, 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 really the outside of the circle here. He strongly urges us to start at the other end. Look what he says. I want you to pray for kings and for all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So what Paul's saying is we need to pray for those people who hold the world together by their rule, by their authority. Those people who have impacts upon culture, impact upon government, I want you to be sure that you pray for those people. It matters that you pray for those people. And if you think about the history of the Jewish people, it was one of constantly living under unstable governments. It was one of captivity, tyrants, oppression. That was their history. And Israel had existed this way for many, many years. And as Paul is writing this letter, even as he's writing, the ruler of the known world is a guy named Nero, the Roman emperor. And Nero is not a very friendly person 
to the church and to Christianity. And in fact, the Romans had made all their subjects pray to the emperor because they believed that he was like a god. He was a god. And so you had to pray to the emperor. Now, when the Romans would go into pagan lands and overtake the people and set them up and say, okay, you're going to pray to Caesar, you're going to bow a knee to Caesar, for most cultures that wasn't a big problem because it was just another god to add to their many gods. And what's another god going to hurt you? It doesn't hurt to have another god to pray for. Maybe that's going to pray to because that's going to help me, right? But the Jewish people would not ever do that. The Jewish people were one god, Yahweh God, and we will pray to no other God. We will bow down before no other God. And so unlike the rest of the known world, they worshipped one God, the true God. And so it was difficult, obviously, to get them to pray for the emperor. So rather than to fight this battle, they allowed the Jewish people to pray to their own God on behalf of the emperor. That they could pray to God on behalf of Nero. And so that's a background that helps us understand what Paul is talking about here, but he's also showing that it's just practical, makes practical sense for them to be praying, if prayer really matters, be praying for those who control the world. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So he's going to give us four reasons, at least four reasons to pray here. And the first one is prayer promotes peace and allows the gospel to flourish. Prayer promotes peace and allows the gospel to flourish. Because if we were a house church today in China, we would be well aware that at any time there could be knock at the door. The door could be busted in. In could come government officials. I would be taken away. Some of the key elders would be drug away to tor be tortured, possibly even to die. And so do you think that would be high on the priority list of the church in China to be praying for good officials in their government who would allow freedom, would allow for people to worship in peace, to allow people to seek God in a way that God leads them to seek them in, in worship together. And he says, in a way that, that you can live a quiet, godly, and dignified way. You can freely worship Jesus. And so when the Jewish people, back to the Old Testament, when they were in captivity in Babylon... What happened to them there? When, they were, when Jeremiah was writing to them, they were under the oppression of the government. They were there within the city, and they were, were, were wondering, how should we respond to this government that hates God, that's opposed to God, that's taken us away from our homeland and put us into captivity? Should we fight? Should we battle? What should we do? And so interesting that Jeremiah writes to them in 29, chapter 29, he tells them, that they need to settle down, they need to be patient for God's timetable, and it says to pray, verse 7 says, to pray to God on behalf of Babylon. Because if Babylon was at peace, they would be at peace. Pray for the government of Babylon. When they're at peace, you're at peace. And so this is what Paul, is, I'm sure, is in his mind as he's writing to Timothy to get the church in order there. He's saying, hey, if you want to worship God freely, if you want to be able to function as you should as an ambassador for Jesus in your community, pray not just for those in your inner circle. Pray for those on the edges of the circle, those who have authority that can control what life is like for you spiritually, physically, in reality. And so I'm sure some of the people in Babylon 
just like today, object over the fact that we have to pray for people who are anti-God, pray for pagan rulers. I'm not praying for a pagan ruler. I'm praying against him. And I can hear that in Babylon, right? We're not praying for those people. But God says to pray for them. And they reject. They exploit us. They oppress us. They're wicked. They should be overthrown. And yes, maybe they should. But God's ways are not our ways. And his timing is not necessarily the way that we would do things. And sure, for the Babylonians, there was a coming a time of peace and prosperity. But there was also going to be 70 years of captivity prior to getting to that point. Settle down. God's got a plan. He's working it. I'm going to bring prosperity. Jeremiah 29, 11, we all know that. I have it hanging up probably in our house somewhere, right? I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and give you a hope and a future. Yeah, my favorite verse. But wait, 70 years of captivity. Settle down. Pray for Babylon. Make yourself at home, so to speak, the best you can as foreigners, as aliens. Do the work of God. My timing is going to happen when it's going to happen. Trust me and pray on behalf of Babylon. So we pray for Babylon. People in China should pray for the Chinese government. They should pray for peaceful rulers, rulers who will rule in a way that's going to be encouraging to Christianity. And those of us in the United States of America should definitely be praying for our government. We should be praying for Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi, right? We should be praying for all of them. Why? Because what happens there affects us here. And as the government goes, so goes our freedoms. And so we pray for the gospel to be able to flourish. We don't pray for power. We pray for gospel power. Power for the gospel to be able to go freely and us to worship freely. And so that's what we do. That's our job. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy, to pray for those in authority even if they are pagan rulers, because God's plan will happen and God will spread his name and his glory through our prayers and through the power that comes from our prayers. And so when the rulers do their job, good things happen. So besides praying, me just step back for a second because of the timing of this and we know what's coming up here in the next month or so in our country Big time, a lot, of, a lot of happening, a lot of people who are very charged up, and a lot of people think that, you know, if it goes this way, my life's over, or if it goes that way, man, life's going to be so great and wonderful. What do, we, what do we do? What's our responsibility as a church? Well, I came across this quote from Sam Storms, and he writes this. He says, when Paul, in, a, in Romans chapter 13, says that God ordains human government and invests in it with authority, it invests it with authority, he does not mean to suggest that their government is therefore free to do as it pleases. It is subject to God and his will. Government is not morally autonomous. The church is the conscience of the state. I agree with that wholeheartedly. The church is the, con the conscience of the state. And that's why it's so important as we as Christians, if we don't carry the banner for morality and holiness, who's going to? If we don't live the way that God's called us to live, who else is going to do that? So we've got to start with ourselves. It's easy to criticize the government, but then turn a blind eye to our own behaviors, our own lack of morality and holiness. 
A guy, when I was younger in ministry, had a big impact on me. His name was Bill Hybels, pastor of Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago. And a few years ago, he had stepped down from his post because of moral fa failures. And I can name name after name after name of people who are leaders and pastors who have failed morally. But you know what? For every pastor that's failed morally, there's dozens and dozens in the seat that have as well that you don't know their names. We have a responsibility, not just to sit back and be Monday morning quarterback about how immoral our nation is, but we start with ourselves. Be holy as God is holy. Because it's tough to be the moral conscience of a government if we ourselves are living carefree in however we want to live and not guarding truth and living holy. And so I challenge us, before we think about being the conscience of the state, let the Holy Spirit be your conscience. And then historian Will Durant, he wrote that he could find no case in history where a nation survived without a moral code and in no case where the moral code was not informed in some way by religious truth. And so we have to impact our culture. We have to impact our nation. By voting, absolutely, but more importantly than voting is what? What's the passage saying? Prayer. We pray for those who are in, rules, in rule over us, those who have authority over us. If I ask, how many of you prayed for one of your government rulers this past week? Raise your hand. How many people would raise their hand, I wonder? I, I, and then what if I said, okay, what if, how many of you prayed for one of your adversaries in government, one of the, your enemies in government this past week? Raise your hand. You see, oftentimes we pray for power, but God wants us to pray for peace. I want the church to be able to worship in peace, do what we've been called to do in peace, proclaim the truth in peace, and live in a way that promotes Jesus and the gospel. And so we rest. We know God's in control. No matter what happens in our nation, God is completely in control, whether it's Nero or whether it's Constantine, if you know history, right? You're, whoever's there, whoever's running the country, pray for them. Pray for them. Ask God to change their heart and to work for the peace of our nation, the peace of our churches, and for religious freedom. That's what God has called us to do, and that's what Paul says to Timothy. Pray for those in government. And then the second thing we see, prayer is good and pleasing to God. Very simply, verse 3, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Prayer that's pleasing to God is prayer that's focused on kingdom. I'm praying for government so the kingdom can advance. I'm praying for all people so the gospel can go out. Because this is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And so the way that Paul described it in verse 2 that's pleasing. Pray for those people so we can share freely the gospel with others. Then the third thing, verse 3 and 4, prayer changes our heart toward people. Prayer changes our heart toward people. Look at it again. He says, this, this praying for all, verse 3, is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Why? Because he desires all people, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of of the truth. He desires all people, not just the select few over here, Timothy, who think they're the insiders, those who follow the Mosaic law, these Gentiles who have converted, 
Uh, not, uh, God says, I'm, I want everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so, if we are going to tell other people about God's heart, we have to know God's heart, don't we? And God's heart is people. God loves people, and He wants to see them come to Him. And if God wants that, we should want that too. And if God wants that, here's a question that you may be thinking in your head if you're following me, if you're awake. If God wants that to happen, why doesn't it happen? I mean, God's God. If God wants that to happen, and God says, I want all people to be saved, then why are people, all people, not being saved? Well, that's a great question if you've asked yourself that in your head. There's a couple of things, you know, over the, over the centuries, many people have ran to this, this verse in order to um, try to defend what is called universalism, is this idea that everyone at the end of the day will be saved because God wants all people to be saved, and so ultimately they're going to be saved because they argue because God desires all people to be saved, and God always gets his way, doesn't he, right? Then all people are going to be saved. Makes sense, right? God desires it. It happens. Boom. But we know if, if you're a student of Scripture, if you've been to Grace Church for very long, you know that the whole of the Bible, what it preaches and what it teaches, is clear that the only way to salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. Period. And we're going to see that more in this passage as you walk through this passage. But there's no universalism that in, in Scripture. There's no, you know, this is just all going to happen at the end of the day, no matter what you believe and no matter what you put your faith in, at the end of the day, God is the same God and He'll just let everybody into His kingdom everybody into heaven. That's not going to happen according to Scripture. And then some will argue if God desires all people to be saved and not all people are saved, then ultimately God is not in control of everything in the world. Some people will say that. If God wants it and it ain't happening, then there's a problem. God's not in control. God's not as sovereign as we think he is. Well, this is most certainly not true as well. God's will cannot be thwarted. So what's Paul teaching? What is he getting at here? Well, in Scripture, if you study Scripture, you understand that there's several ways that God's will is communicated in Scripture. And the terms that we've put on that are His decreed will, which involves what He ordains to take place in the world, His sovereignty, He's in control of everything. All things work together for the way that He wants, for His glory. All things happen. There's the decreed will, but there's also His declared will is what He commands and makes known to us in his word. So follow me here, okay? So his decreed will, it's going to happen, it's sovereign. His declared will, what he commands in scripture, the way that he says for us to live. Now, if you're here and you're a little, like, you're up late and your head's not, like, quite following this, let me illustrate it to help you out better, okay? So some years ago, I had a neighbor, true story, had a neighbor who had tapped into our fire hydrant, and he was watering the yard with the, on the city's dime. I mean, he, he had the most beautiful plush uh, lawn in the city. I mean, it was awesome. Every, every day, I mean, he had that thing hooked up and just psh, water, you know, as much as he wanted, anytime he wanted, no bill, right, to pay for it, right? Great, good stuff, right? And he asked me, he said, uh, John, do you want me to run the, 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 the sprinkler over in your yard so you can get some of this water? Well, think about that for a second, okay? So what does God say about stealing, right? What is his declared will about stealing? It clearly says in Scripture, in New Testament, Ephesians, let the thief who stole, stole steal no more. In the Eighth Commandment, in the Old Testament, you shall not steal. All right? That's God's will. 
plain and simple, God says, don't steal. It's not yours. You're not paying for it. You don't own it. It doesn't belong to you. Don't take it, right? But let's just say, hypothetically, which, by the way, rest in confidence, I didn't use the water, okay? He asked me, I said, uh, no, but imagine for sake of illustration that I said, oh, yeah, tomorrow drag that over to my yard and let me have some of that too. And he does that, and, and I steal. What happened? Did God not get his way? Did God not, his will not followed? So I would be disobeying God's will, his declared will in that situation. But at the same time, if I chose to steal, my stealing doesn't catch God off guard or by surprise. Whoa, what am I going to do now? All right, John disobeyed my will. What am I going to do? It's all going to fall out of line and everything's going to be a mess now and i got to some way figure out how to clean this stuff up. No, he doesn't. He doesn't get surprised by this. Everything that I do ultimately comes under his sovereign or decreed will so that, my, in a sense, my stealing is actually part of his will. And, and so think about that, process it, study it some more, but it's clear God's revealed will in his word says, do this, don't do this. We choose not to do these things all the time. But at the same time, we know that God is complete sovereign. He's in control. Nothing happens that he's not aware of. There's nothing that happens that he doesn't command. And so God is in complete control. But we see his heart. He desires everyone to come to him. Everyone to find Jesus as Savior. And then the fourth thing. Prayer is a request for God to save sinners by overcoming the sinner's resistance to Jesus. Let me say that again. Prayer is a request for God to save sinners by overcoming the sinner's resistance to Jesus. Look at verse 3, 4, and 5. This, again, praying for all people, this is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So you see, salvation clearly has to be connected to truth. This is not universalism. He turns around and he says, just one verse later, he says, so that everyone will come to knowledge of the truth. There's one God. There's not multiple ways to God. There's not you just believe that way and let that religion believe that way. And it's all good. Like we're, we can be happy and we can just celebrate diversity. It's, it's not there. It's not in Scripture and it's not in this passage. He says there's one God, one mediator, and he says it's the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus said it himself. There's no way to the Father except through me. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. But he says that we can pray and we can ask God to give us his heart for these people because he desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as the Savior. He wants people's eyes to be open to his beauty and the beauty of the gospel and to the person of Jesus. And so if your idea of God's sovereignty, follow me here, if your idea of God's sovereignty causes you to pray less, then you're not obeying Scripture and you need to rethink your understanding of God's sovereignty. Because God allows, even ordains, our prayers to be part of the equation 
for how he's accomplishing his will. And I know that for, you know, 1130 on a Sunday morning, this is some pretty heavy, heavy, heavy stuff. It's pretty heavy. But you've got to process it because it's so important as you think, should I pray or should I not pray? God's going to do what he's going to do anyway. Should I pray for that person I work with? Yes, because God desires all people to be saved. And he desires for you to pray and never presume that God will grant you, apart from prayer, what he has ordained to grant you only by means of prayer. Let me say that again. You must never presume God will grant you, apart from prayer, what he has ordained to grant you by means of prayer. And so we pray and we seek God. And ultimately our heart gets changed, for sure, right? Because we have more compassion to those around us who don't know Jesus. We have more eagerness and a desire to speak Jesus and tell the gospel and not to be ashamed because we love people and we know people need truth. And the truth is, Jesus is the only way. For there's one God, verse 5 and 6, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So he shows God's heart. He shows that God doesn't delight in the destruction of the wicked. He delights when sinners are saved to the point where Jesus came and he gave his life as a ransom. He died on your behalf. He died on your neighbor's behalf. He died on your enemy's behalf. He died so that those people could come to Jesus Christ and find salvation. We deserve death. He died in our place. He was a ransom, a substitute for us. And so we declare his greatness. We preach the gospel. We show costly love because it's awkward sometimes, isn't it, to speak the truth? And it's hard sometimes to do that in a loving way. But that's what we've been called to do. We have a message that's the ultimate love message that we deserved eternal separation from God. We deserved his wrath. We deserved his punishment because of our sin. But instead of dishing that out on us, Jesus comes and he takes that for us. Wow. I think we've heard that so many times that it's lost its punch, it's lost its power. That Jesus did what we deserved. He, he took what we deserved. He did what we could never do. And in turn, we can have life. Not just so, I got my salvation, I'm good to go. What's next on, we're going to watch on TV? Who's playing, this, who's playing this afternoon? All those things become more and more insignificant as we see the heart of God. As we see what God cares about. And we pursue those things. So, in closing, head, heart, hands. Head, prayer matters. It makes a difference. Believe that. Trust it, and don't just trust it, do it. Pray. Pray believing that it does make an impact. It makes a difference. And heart, to tell of God's heart, we first need to know God's heart, don't we? To tell of God's heart, we need to know God's heart. And so it's about being with God, spending time with God. It's hard to be passionate for the name of Christ 
when we're not passionate personally in our personal lives for Him. It's hard to be passionate out there if we're not passionate ourselves in our heart. So you want to know God's heart? It's to love all and reach all and share the gospel with all. But it starts with God getting a hold of your heart. And then our hands, real practical. Just pray for people by name. That's an easy one to do, right? Just pray for people by name. Ask the Holy Spirit, reveal to me some people that I can pray for by name and begin to pray for them by name. Those people who don't know Jesus, those people who you probably look at their life and realize that they more than likely may say they know Jesus, but they don't know Jesus, pray for them. Prayer matters. You want to know God's heart? Be with God. Spend time with God. And then pray for people. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice on the cross. We know that there's so much in this passage to process, and there's so much truth here, God. But at the end of the day, we want your heart. We want to care about the things that you care about. We want to pray about the things that you care and are concerned about. And ultimately, that is people. The people that you've put into our path. The people that have influence over our world. The people who impact just our freedom to do what we're doing today. God, I pray that we will truly, truly apply this to our lives. God, help us to pray for our enemies. Let us pray for our friends. Let us pray for those who don't impact us directly, that we can easily write them off as somebody else's problem. But God, help us to minister to them in prayer. And God, for those within our sphere of influence, God, then help us to be willing to speak up and to share your glory and your greatness. In Jesus' name, amen.